0: Welcome to The Hills, all of you watching online and in person at North Richard Hills, Keller and West Fort Worth. Uh, My name is Rick. I'm blessed to be the senior teaching minister here at this church. If you are watching online, let me just tell you, it is hot in Texas. And you need to be careful and be thinking of our third through fifth graders that are at camp this week, that they are careful, Two things you can do when it is really, really hot that are important. Number one, drink a lot of water. And number two, listen to a lot of refreshing sermons. These things will help you when it's really, really hot. And I hope the sermon today will refresh you. We're back in the book of Esther one more time. So be finding chapter four. So Tom was middle-aged, never married The only child of a very, very wealthy man who was in bad health, in fact, was probably going to die in a matter of months. And Tom thought, I would like to share this fortune I'm about to receive with someone. So he goes to an investment meeting and he sees a woman that is beautiful. She takes his breath away, totally out of character for him. Tom walks up to her and says, hello, my name is Tom. And I would love to get to know you better. Now, I know I'm not impressive. I'm not particularly good looking. I'm shy. I'm bashful. But I am a nice person. And it might help you to know that my father is very ill. And in a few months, I am going to inherit about $100 million. She sounded intrigued. She asked for his business card. And wouldn't you know it, within a month, She was his stepmother. See, (laughs) I've always said women are better at estate planning than men. I admire people who can recognize opportune moments that may never come again, and they have the courage to do something about it. It is a manifestation of what the scriptures call wisdom. And the Scriptures call on all of us to be wise. Look, for example, at Ephesians 5. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Maybe your translation says, make the best of the time. The Greeks had two words for time. One was chronos, chronological time, second after second, hour after hour, day after day. But the word that Paul uses here is the word kairos. It means a unique moment. It's how we use the word when we say it's time for you to straighten up or you need to buy that stock now. It's the right time. So what Paul is saying is there are certain moments created by culture, created by history, created by God. And wise people recognize them, and they seize them. They have the capacity to know what time it is. Now, that text came to my mind over a week ago when I was preparing a sermon for Father's Day on the story of Mordecai and Esther. So I want to go back to that story. I mentioned last week you could call it the book of Mordecai, but there's a reason we call it the book of Esther. And what we're going to see today is that she was a brilliant woman, especially because she knew how to pass the test of time. Now, last week, I took about 10 minutes and gave an overview of the whole book of Esther. Can't do that today. We're going to pick up with Esther being picked to be the new queen of Persia. You see, Xerxes, the king, had gotten rid of his first queen and wanted another one. Now, right off the bat, the story asks us to believe something very hard to believe, that there's ever been a time in history when middle-aged men would get rid of their first wife so that they could have a new young trophy wife. But evidently, that's what they did back then. And so it's important to realize Esther didn't choose this. They picked young women from across the empire to be a part of this pageant, and she got chosen, and she could not refuse. What she could choose was to follow Mordecai's advice and not reveal her ethnicity. So when Xerxes picks her to be his new queen, he does not know he has picked a Jew. And then if you recall, the villain of the story was a man named Haman. And Haman hated the Jewish people and manipulated Xerxes into signing a law that would allow for the extermination of the entire nation of Jews. Basically permitting ethnic genocide. And I got to thinking, I think there is more going on here than just Haman's narcissism. I mentioned last week, the word God is not in the whole book of Esther neither is the word devil, but God is all over that story. And so is the devil. See, I believe Haman is operating under the influence of demons. Back in the start of the Bible in Genesis three, God said, I am going to send a redeemer through the seed of this woman. Then in Genesis 12, God particularly picks Abraham and says, through your family, I'm going to redeem my creation. Through your family, I am going to send a deliverer. I believe what's happening here is that the devil is trying to thwart God's announced plan to redeem the world through the seed of Abraham by wiping out all of the Jews. Either way, it's important to know that Esther is completely unaware of the plot. She's isolated in the palace. She has no idea that Jews all over the empire are putting on sackcloth and ashes and mourning until someone tells her that Mordecai is too. See, Mordecai was more than just her cousin. He was her adoptive father. Mordecai rescued her. And she wants to know why he's so unhappy. So she sends an attendant, a man named Hathik, to the king's gate to ask Mordecai, what is going on? And that's where we pick up the story in Esther chapter 4, verse 7. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text for the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Mordecai makes it clear that it is time for Esther to make her ethnicity clear. It is time for her to tell the king, I'm a Jew. And you're going to wipe out my people. And I beg for mercy. But Esther had a good reason not to seize the moment. And she explains, now starting in verse 9. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then he instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court... Without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So let me explain what's going on here. And you're going to find it to be morally repugnant, but it was the custom of that day. Just because Esther was queen does not mean she had Instant or immediate access to the king. Because the king had a harem. The king slept with many women. And what Esther is saying is, it's been 30 days since he's called for me. In short, I'm not the flavor of the month. Now, in that culture, the only thing more life-threatening than not showing up before the king if he summoned you was to just waltz into his throne room, unsummoned. You do that, I don't even care if you're the queen. You have a death wish. And so she's saying to Mordecai, this is not the time. And listen to his response, verse 12. When Esther's words reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. So Mordecai is challenging Esther to reflect on her life. Why is it? that when your parents did not return to Palestine when they had the chance? How is it that of all our extended family, you wound up in my house? How can you explain out of all the beautiful women in this empire, he just happened to choose you and did not even know that you were a Jew? See, Mordecai is contending that the coincidences that brought Esther to this exact time were, in fact, the providences of God. He's saying, Esther, you are not where you are for the reason the king thinks. You are there because the king of kings has a reason. So do not allow the trappings of comfort and privilege to keep you from recognizing what time it is. And as I mentioned, Esther is a brilliant woman. There's a reason we named the book after her. So, listen to her bold, faithful response. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai Go gather together all the Jews who were in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And you ought to read the rest of the story if you don't know what happened. Through a series of brilliant steps, Esther saves her people. She proves that she's smarter than any man in that palace. And she's a true hero. But what I'm going to suggest today is that it's time to let her story speak to our time. You see, I believe that we were all made to live on purpose. That we need a bigger mission than just to take care of ourselves in order to be fully alive. Many years ago, there was a commercial. And in the first scene, you see two parents with a little baby boy. And the beaming dad says, we're going to call him Stanley and someday he'll be president of the United States. In the second scene, you see a wedding and the father of the bride walks up to Stanley and says, I know you wanted to go to med school, but I want you to join me in my manufacturing business. In the third scene, you see middle-aged Stanley and his wife at a posh resort, and it's evident they have made a lot of money and are living well. And in the last scene, you see a minister at a funeral saying, Stanley was very beloved at Shady Nook Rest Home. He was our best gin rummy player and had low cholesterol. And the last thing you see is a narrator who says, isn't it sad to live your whole life and you never made a ripple and you never rocked a boat? Join the Peace Corps. Now, what was that commercial trying to tap into? It was trying to tap into that longing deep inside of all of us to think, I'm here for a reason, a bigger reason than just how quick can I pay off a mortgage and how long can I put off my funeral. Every person needs a purpose. a For such a time as this. And Esther's story warns us. Don't miss the time of your life. It takes great wisdom to recognize this is that moment God created for me. It takes great wisdom to resist the seduction of the default mission. What do I mean? Well, there's the reason you're here. There's the purpose that God put you on the earth. And there's the thing that you drift to if you forget to tell time. Your default mission is where your life drifts when you forget what time it is. You see, Xerxes had a mission. God put him on the throne to rule justly and to be a blessing to the empire. But his default mission was to seek his pleasure and to see how many parties he could throw. And Haman had a mission. God put him in a place where he could give wise counsel for the blessing and the benefit and the fruition of all the peoples in the nation. But his default mission became building his own platform And his own image projection. And Esther had a default mission she could have succumbed to. It's a default mission the world constantly tells beautiful young women to accept. Find a rich man and be eye candy. And she could have done that. And lived a life of comfort and privilege, completely oblivious to the suffering in the world. See, if you can't tell what time it is, your life will drift off mission. But remember, God saved us on purpose, for a purpose. So, what I'm gonna do is, I wanna use Esther's story to give us some ideas. How can you pass the test? of time. Here's the first thing to remember. At no time has God lost control. I know the days are full of evil, but let me remind you, God never has a hard time being God. Do you remember in the Old Testament, he gave specific instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the temple and the furniture that would go in it. And nowhere does God say, and put in a suggestion box. Because I've never run a universe before and I'm new at it. So if you have any ideas of how I could do a better job being God, please let me know. You see, God is never unaware of the plots against him. And he's never unable to do something about it. In fact, did you notice that amazing faith statement that Mordecai made to Esther? He said, for if you remain silent at This time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. What place, Mordecai? He doesn't know. But he knows God. He knows God is faithful. He knows God entered into covenant with Abraham. He knows God promised that I will use your people and your descendants to bless this world, and God can't break a promise. Satan can do nothing to thwart the announced purposes of God, even if he seduces God's people to do nothing. We read in Isaiah 59, the Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. Here's what you need to know. God wants our help. He doesn't need it. God's agenda and God's purposes are not forfeited if you don't know how to tell time. What's forfeited is the blessing you and I would have because we didn't partner with God. Let me tell you something a lot of you don't know. I've told you before. Ever since I was a boy, I knew God called me to preach. I was six or seven years old when I announced to the world I should be a preacher. But I fought my call. I grew up in little churches, and I saw time and again that churches can pay preachers poorly and treat preachers poorly. And I did not want my future to be determined by the whims of a fickle church. That's why I don't have a Bible degree. I have two degrees of communication. See, I was going to go into the marketplace. I was going to make money. I was going to take care of myself. I was going to preach on the side. And that way, no church could control what my future looked like. That was my default mission. Now, if I had chosen to live into my default mission, Would the gospel go unpreached? Was God in heaven saying, oh, no, what if Rick doesn't become a preacher? What am I going to do? He would have raised up other preachers. No, by choosing the default mission, God wouldn't have forfeited his agenda. I would have forfeited all the blessings I have known from having my life in alignment with God's call for me. You see, at no time has God lost control. And it's about time we recognize that, because that leads to the second big idea, that in this time, we need to seize opportunities to partner with God. Maybe you don't like the time that you're in. I bet Esther didn't either. I remind you, she didn't choose to be queen in the first place. And perhaps you find yourself in a very challenging moment in time, and you didn't choose it, and you didn't create it. But is it possible that the coincidences that produce this moment are actually the providences of God? Remember, God is not just saving us from something. God is saving us for something. So instead of complaining about this particular moment, you're in. Maybe you should start claiming God's grace to be and do what he wants from you at this time. Remember what Paul said. Don't live like fools. But live like those who are wise and make The most of every opportunity in these evil days. What does the Bible mean when it calls someone a fool? It does not mean that they are stupid. It means that they live their lives unconscious of God. It means that they live for their own agendas and never recognize what God is up to. Let me illustrate that from a teaching of Jesus. He tells a story about a rich man. He certainly was not stupid. He was quite successful in the arena of agro-business. And then he has a bumper year. Everything went right on his investments. What did he do with this surplus of blessing that had come into his life that year? Did he fast and seek God's wisdom? Did he pray about it? Did he go to synagogue and ask some trusted elders, what should I do with this moment that I've been blessed with? No. He didn't think for a moment about what God wanted of him at that time. He thought, I could tear down my barn. I could build a lot bigger barn. I could retire early. I could pretty much party the rest of my life. One problem, he didn't know how to tell time. He didn't have nearly as much as he thought, and he died. And here is the word that Jesus used to describe him. The word Jesus used of that man was, you fool. Don't be a fool. Learn to tell the time. Wise people don't ask God to bless what they're doing as much as they see what God is blessing and they go do that. Because the days are evil. And they're full of obstacles. But they're also full of opportunities. And that's because at no time has God lost control. That's why Paul says to the Colossian church be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Listen to me, church. God is consistently creating moments that seem like coincidences where you can step into that time and be wise. For the name of Jesus. I had a moment like that recently. A very generous member of our church about two months ago took me on a golf trip to a very exclusive club. So exclusive that you can't play golf there unless you have a caddy. Now just be honest. I am not good enough to deserve a caddy. But that was the rule. So for two days this man carried my clubs and talked me around the golf course. Well, I'm not spending two days with anybody and not finding out where they are with Jesus. And I found out about the fourth hole that he had kind of a nominal belief in Jesus, but it wasn't impacting his life. And he went on to say, I've got some questions about the Bible and I have some doubts about this and about that. And we talked about those things. And at the end of the second day, when the round was finished, I realized this is probably the last time I will ever see this man. So I pulled him aside and said, give me a couple of moments. I said, here's what you need to understand. It all comes down to one thing. Did Jesus of Nazareth defeat death and walk out of a tomb? Now, if Jesus of Nazareth is still dead, I am the biggest fool in the world to spend my life doing what I do. If Jesus of Nazareth walked out of a tomb, And defeated death. Then he is Lord of lords. He is going to judge the living and the dead. And you would be a fool to know that. And not live your life in line with it. So I looked him in the eye and said. So. Do you believe Jesus. Is risen. And he emphatically nodded. Yeah I do. Then be wise. Live your life like you believe it. And I hope in that moment, I was wise. God saved me on purpose, for a purpose. And I don't want to miss the time of my life. But that means I must constantly resist the seduction of the default mission. So that leads to the third and final big idea. That from time to time, we must help each other stay on mission. That no one can resist mission drift without missional community. Nobody can tell time well in isolation. Mordecai needed Esther's help to rescue the Jews, but Esther needed Mordecai's encouragement to recognize what time it is. You see, everybody needs another set of eyes. Everybody needs the help of others to keep from drifting into the default mission. So can I just get into your business a little bit? Can you identify your Mordecai? Is there anybody in your life that loves Jesus and loves you enough to speak truth to you if your life starts to drift? So I can tell you where I was standing my senior year of college when I finally surrendered and told God, you didn't call me to preach on the side. It's right for some people, but that's not what you called me to do. That next summer, I had an internship with a church as a youth intern. I had a girlfriend, very pretty, lovely girl. And it was my job one night to plan a youth event, and I did. And something went wrong. It wasn't my fault. But a mother of one of the teenagers just chewed me out. Remember my fear? If you enter ministry, church people will treat you poorly. So I get back in the car with my girlfriend, and I am livid. Now, I would like to think today I'm more mature, but I wasn't then. So I just spewed about how unfair that was and how mad it made me. And she turned to me and she said, so why do you put up with it? Why do you want to be a minister? You're really talented. You could be really successful doing something else. You don't have to work for a church. And I don't think she was being ugly or ungodly. But in that moment, I heard the temptation I had told God I was saying no to. And I knew I needed a life partner that would always call me back to my for such a time as this. Not too long after that, we broke up. Not too long after that, I met a young woman from San Antonio named Jamie. She's been my wife now for 42 years. She has many, many gifts. But here's something about her you need to know. One of her best gifts is tail kicking. (laughs) That for four decades, if I drift out of line with what God wants me to do, she has been there faithfully to kick me in the tail. You may not think tail kicking is a spiritual gift. I'm here to tell you that it is, and she employs it to the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) And maybe... It's about time that you let somebody else help you tell time. Because we're all called for such a time as this. This is our time. I can learn from times past. Maybe I can inspire times ahead. But I can only serve at this time. And I hope when they preach my eulogy, they'll say something like Paul said of David in Acts 13. When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. And the less time I have, the more I think about this. Some of you are familiar with an author named Philip Yancey, an articulate, provocative thinker and Christian writer. He rode in Christianity Today a few years ago after he had been in a very serious car accident. He lives in Colorado. He was on a mountain road. He's in his Explorer driving 60 miles an hour, misses a turn. His car flips down a hill. When the ambulances arrive, they uh, diagnose that he has broken vertebrae in his neck. And sharp pieces of bone are poking into a major artery. So they'd strap him to a board, keep his head still, and he lived like that for seven hours, fully conscious and fully aware. At any second, he could die. They were able to get him to the hospital to do the surgery that saved his life, but he wrote reflecting on those seven hours. He says, when you're strapped to a bodyboard after a serious accident, it concentrates the mind. I realized how much of my life focused on trivial things. During those seven hours, I didn't think about how many books I had sold or what kind of car I drove. It was being towed to a junkyard anyway. All that mattered boiled down to four questions. Whom do I love? Whom will I miss? What have I done with my life? And am I ready? For what's next. So here again the word of the Lord. Be careful how you live. Not like fools. But like those who are wise. The days are filled with evil. But they are also full. Of opportunities. From God. So make the most of them. Is that how you're living? Because friend, it's about time. Let's pray. God, please take this message and use it to bring somebody closer to Jesus. Maybe somebody hearing this message needs to repent. Because they've lived a long season in drift mode. Maybe somebody needs to surrender fully for the first time. Maybe this is the day someone needs to get baptized and proclaim that they want to follow Jesus. But God, use this message to bring somebody closer to Jesus. And give us all greater capacity to tell time.